Good morning. Ooh. You awake? How you guys doing this morning? That that good, huh? Nice, nice. Been a week, huh? Well, this morning we are we're actually nearing the end of our series entitled Meanwhile, where we've been walking scene by scene through the life of of Joseph in the Old Testament. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 41 today, but I just wanna say this, if you've missed part of this series, this series is designed to be a little bit like uh, like a show. So each episode stands alone, but it makes a whole lot more sense when you see it all together. So I wanna encourage you, this morning, what what God's got to say to us, I believe, through this scene in Joseph's life is relevant no matter what. But there are some nuances and some themes that if you've missed a couple, you've, if you go back onto our podcast and listen to those, then you're going to see a depth and, and the beauty of this story is really going to come alive for you. So Genesis chapter 41, we're going to start reading in verse 46. But while we're turning there, we left off last week with Joseph in prison. Joseph had been falsely accused of something. He'd been sent to prison. While he was in prison, he had been made second in command of the prison. And then he had interpreted some dreams, showing God's authority with him in prison. But then the people that he had done this great favor, this service to, forgot him when they were elevated. So it's two years later, two years after Joseph really thought he was getting out of prison, that this happens. And Joseph actually, the person that he interpreted the dream for remembers him because, jo- because Pharaoh has a bad dream. You might've seen this. Um, you, there's, a, uh, there's a cartoon, a DreamWorks cartoon about it. You can go watch that documentary. It's great. Um, but uh, Joseph interprets the dream. The dream means that there are gonna be seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt, and then there's gonna be seven years of famine. So Joseph tells Pharaoh that, gives Pharaoh some advice. Pharaoh is so impressed, not just with the interpreting of the dream, but with Joseph's consistent faithfulness and stewarding of his gifting. Let me say that. That's not part of the sermon today, but it's worth noting that it's not just the flashiness of a dream interpretation that God uses to elevate Joseph. It's Joseph's continued faithfulness faithfulness, stewarding his gift, even in prison, even as a slave in every circumstance. So we get to this place. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph that he makes him second in command in Egypt. Second in command. Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Joseph is the second in command in the empire of Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful dude on earth at this time in history. So here's where the story picks up. In verse verse 46, it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. We're going to stop there today. 
Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this morning has already been filled with your presence and your goodness. We have already known and seen and experienced your kindness with us today. We ask that you would continue to reveal your goodness to us. God, once again, as we always pray when we approach your word, let it be your name that's known and your ideas that are communicated. Anything that's from my mind, let it be forgotten. And when we leave here, let the name of Jesus be the only name on our minds. We love you. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like church is a little fake? Yeah, yeah, okay. Some of you, like, you need to know it's not a trick question. You're not going to get in trouble for saying yes. Like, feels a little fake, feels a little plastic, a little inauthentic. Like, there are meme accounts. There are people making money on Instagram because church is a little bit fake, right? Like, this is common knowledge. We all know the stereotype that's like you're screaming at your spouse and your kids in the car, and then you check your, your smile in the mirror so you can walk in and be like, amen, how you doing? God bless you, brother. I'm too blessed to be stressed, upright, and breast. Amen right? Like, we all, we all understand that. We've all seen that. And millennials, we really, really, really like to give the other generations a hard time for this. Uh, but I would just like to point out that we millennials do this just as much as anyone else. We just get tattoos and cuss a little bit and say things like, I'm just being real. You know, like, can I just be real with y'all? Which, just because you said you were being real doesn't mean you were being real. Just, just for the record. And this shouldn't really surprise us that this happens in church. Church isn't the only place this happens. We live in an appearance-oriented culture. Like everywhere. I mean, it's social media. It's at the mall. It's at the PTA meeting. It's at soccer games when I'm watching my kid and I'm like, I don't want my, like, like projecting on my son my own performance anxiety when I'm coaching him and yelling way too loud at the soccer field, right? I'm the only parent running up and down the field saying, move, stop, go, run, stop, right? No one else? That's just me? Okay, that's fine. The issue is not so much that it happens in the church. It's everywhere. The tension is really that in Scripture, there's nothing plastic. Scripture, cover to cover, is full of the stuff of life. The joy, the pain, the awkward, the uncomfortable... I mean, it's, it's all there. During this series, we've been kind of going back and forth. We've looked at the depth of struggle in Joseph's life, the darkness, feeling forgotten and feeling abandoned and being betrayed. And we've also looked at these sweeping theological ideas, how the story of Joseph and the book of Genesis becomes the archetype, becomes an interpreting story for all of scripture, how it's like the origin story. We've seen beautiful themes of God's character and these sweeping things. And I love preaching that type of thing because, guys, the Bible is cool. Okay, some of you just need to hear, like, the Bible is really, really cool. The Bible gets a bad rap for being kind of boring and dry, but I would offer that that's probably because you haven't dove into it deep enough yet because the Bible is beautiful. And I mean all of it, like Revelation, Psalms, Leviticus, the boring parts are beautiful. This, this book does not just 
just contain truth and trustworthiness in all that it claims. It also contains like the height of human literature and wisdom that lasts throughout the ages and, and creativity and artistry that will blow your mind when you dive into it and you see the interwoven themes. The Bible is beautiful and it's complex. And it's complex, not like a microchip, not like something that's different from me that I can't really understand, but it's complex like an ecosystem. Like something that I might not see all the parts of, but I can live in. The Bible is beautiful. But today, what stands out to me so much in this story is this moment of humanity in Joseph. When Joseph names his sons. Joseph, it seems, everything in his life is going well. He is the second in command in Egypt. He is the second most powerful person on earth. He has access to anything that he wants. Everything in life is going well. And just for the record, this is a, this is a significant moment, not just because Joseph names his sons, but because when Joseph names his sons, his sons later become tribes in the land of Israel. The Old Testament is primarily about the nation of Israel and their relationship to God. And the nation of Israel had 12 tribes. These tribes were kind of like states in the U.S. And when Joseph names his sons, he's naming what becomes tribes. The tribes were supposed to be Joseph and his 11 brothers, but his older brother Reuben, in like kind of an icky story, loses his birthright and is no longer one of the tribes. And Joseph actually is given the privilege, because in this culture, it's more of a blessing for your kids to be empowered than it is for yourself to be empowered. If you remember the first sermon in this series, you remember that part of the problem in the beginning was that Jacob was holding on to power. Joseph's dad was clinging to power instead of empowering his kids, and Joseph does the opposite. That's worth noting. Joseph names his sons, and his sons become identity bearers for the people of Israel. So it's not just Joseph's emotion in these names. It's part of the identity of the people of God in these names. And it says, he named his first son Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all of my troubles and the household of my father. It's interesting to name someone that you forgot something, isn't it? Because a name is a commemoration. So it's like, see, these are all the things I forgot. I forgot this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. Like, clearly you didn't forget. Like, Joseph is commemorating something. Maybe he's commemorating that he's moved on, but he still remembers. Maybe he's commemorating that, that it doesn't have sway on him like it used to, but there's still a shadow. If you remember earlier in the story, Joseph had these dreams, and in these dreams, his brothers and his parents bowed down before him. And Joseph knows the character of God well enough by now to know that this wasn't about Joseph being elevated to high position because when God empowers someone, it's for salvation, it's for redemption. So Joseph had these dreams that even though he's second in command in Egypt, nothing has come of them. I mean, he doesn't even know if his brothers are still alive. He had a weird relationship with his dad, but he doesn't know if his dad's still alive. His dad loved him. No matter how complicated it was, he and his dad loved one another. And he had a little brother, a brother that was, I think, 11 years younger than him, that he adores, and he doesn't know if Benjamin is still alive. 
And there are, dream, there are shadows from the past over Joseph's life. He's living in a season where everything's going right, but not everything's going right. Those dreams from long ago, those relationships. Can you imagine being betrayed by your brothers and then not seeing him for, I think, at this point, 13 years? Can you imagine how that emotion goes from bitterness to hatred to forgiveness to moving on to bitterness to hatred to loss to callous to bitterness and back again? Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where everything should be going well? Where, like, by the math, you should be happy. Maybe you got a job. Maybe, maybe you got a promotion. Maybe your finances are finally settled. Maybe you're finally dating or married the person of your dreams. But it's just, you should be happy. But you just don't feel it. Maybe you feel guilty because even though this is supposed to be the greatest moment of your life, it just feels hollow because there's a shadow. Maybe you can forget it for a few days, maybe you can move on when all your friends are around, but every once in a while, that shadow circles over again and casts a pall on whatever you're experiencing. Maybe it's a relationship that just didn't get mended. Maybe it's someone that just isn't here anymore. Now you wanna celebrate with your friends when they experience joy, but their joy just kind of reminds you of the thing that you're missing. So that moment of celebration just becomes this mixed up cocktail of grief and joy shaken and running over. All mixed together. It's one of the beautiful things about Joseph's story. Is that Joseph says... I named my son Manasseh because God has made me forget all my troubles, meaning he still remembers all his troubles, but he's trying to forget them. In other words, both are true. Everything's going well, but not everything's going well. Two things can be true at the same time. And then his next son, he says, he named him Ephraim, and he said, the Lord has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you have joy and you have hope and you kind of feel guilty about it because other people don't? Where you've got people that you love that are going through like the worst days of their life and you want to share the good things in your life but you're just not sure. You feel kind of guilty for being happy. Things are so, the finances are like so tight right now that it just feels, it feels like you should be stressed and you shouldn't be allowed to enjoy life every once in a while. Man, Ukraine is being invaded. How can I go on a date night? My friend just lost their job. How can I celebrate my promotion? Have you ever been made fruitful in a land of suffering? There's a phrase that we've said a lot over the last really two years at the fold. We didn't come up with it. It's a theological term, but I don't know about you. I've come to cling to it. It's the already not yet kingdom of God. It's this complicated truth that we as followers of Jesus live with one foot in each world. We see the already. We've seen the miracle. 
We've seen the provision. We've seen the times where I didn't know how to pay the bills. I didn't think it was going to work, but God gave me more than I could have asked or imagined. We have seen relationships mended and healed. We have seen addictions broken. We have seen God's faithfulness proven tenfold and a hundredfold. We have seen the reality that Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, rose up to the grave, bringing his kingdom here to earth. Now, the inbreaking kingdom of God, we have seen the glimpse and glimmer of the goodness of God here in this world shining through in everything. We've seen the prayers that were answered. We've seen the moments where you're in worship and it just feels like God's right there looking you in the eyes. We've also seen the not yet. We've seen the moments where you come into church and it feels like you're in the next county over, your body's just here. And we've seen the times where, well, we've got the answered prayers and we've got a whole list of them that we've pretty much given up on. And we've seen the times where God provided out of nowhere and we had more than we needed. And we've seen the times where we prayed and prayed and the ends still just barely met. We've seen people released from cancer and we've seen people pass away from cancer. We've seen addictions released only to have people turn to another addiction right away. We live with one foot in two worlds. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, friends. I don't have a, a simple proposition for you this morning. I don't have an application of how to take this idea and apply it to your life. I think what Joseph tells us today is that two things can be true. And that's okay. I can see the goodness of God and not feel anything good right now. And I can receive the joy of God even in a world full of pain and darkness. Two things can be true. The already, not yet, kingdom of God. For the sake of um, practicing what I preach, I want to share just a little bit of my wife and I's story from the last uh, couple of years. And don't worry, she's in the kids today, but I asked her permission. <laughs> so I'm not going to get in trouble for this later. Um, in 2017, we were in a season in life where it just felt like everything was going right. I was a youth pastor in Michigan. We loved the church we worked at, loved the people we worked with. Um, Josiah was a year and a half old. Things were comfortable. I mean, like we were, it felt like we were hitting a stride in our marriage and our relationship. Married people know what that means. It's like things just kind of click every once in a while. You know, sometimes they super don't click. Sometimes they do click. And things were clicking, right? And we've, we had just found out that we were pregnant with another kid. And we weren't even trying. We just weren't not trying. Once again, married people know what that means. But... Um, Everything was going right. And then in, uh, in July, in late July of that year, we went into the doctor to hear the heartbeat. And if you've been around doctors, you know that moment when the doctor has bad news, but they don't know how to say it yet. The ultrasound technician got a weird look on her face and left the room, and the doctor came back in and tried to find the heartbeat again and uh, said, this is not a viable pregnancy. I'm so sorry. And they explained to us that the baby was already lost and that the miscarriage would come in the next week or so. When you get news like that and there's no physical evidence of it yet, you live in this denial. 
You live praying those prayers of like, God, the batteries were dead in their machine. I, I believe that. Something's going to happen. They were wrong. And then the, the miscarriage actually happened, and it was awful. Jen was rushed to the hospital in an ambulance, emergency procedure. Fortunately, we had friends uh, in the area that could pick up Josiah from the hospital for us so that I could be present with her. But it was the worst day of our lives. Um, sometimes people ask me why I have the word Zion tattooed on my knuckles. And if I don't know him super well or if I don't have time, then I say it's because in Scripture, Zion is equated with the hope of God making everything right in eternity. Which, that's true. Um, and, and everybody, I want to say this, everybody who experiences miscarriage processes that differently, and I think that's wise. Do that with a counselor, do that as a couple, pray about that, and, and whatever each person has to do to process that in the right way. I don't claim to know what the right way is, I just know what we did. And we prayed about it afterwards, and I just felt strongly that we were to give the child the name Zion. So there, there she is. I don't, I don't know if it was a girl or not. Anything other than I feel like that from the Lord. But, you know, I've been wrong about stuff before. Um, Jen got it engraved on a necklace. I got it tattooed on my knuckles, which is kind of the difference between the two of us. Uh, um, and right after that, um, we felt God just totally... and. and believe it was the Lord, totally uproot our lives, ask us to quit our jobs, sell our house in Michigan, and move to join a missionary organization, leave comfortable salaries and home that we loved to go live in a basement apartment full of like college students and um, fundraise for a living. Um, and in that time, man, we saw God do powerful things. We were discipled and transformed in such significant ways, and it was really hard. Is in that, um, we were going to do our training, we were going to have to spend over the course of 18 months, about three months in India. And after going through a miscarriage in the U.S., we just weren't willing to risk something like that in India. So we made the decision that because God has asked us to, to do this missions work, we're going to put off having another child. Um, and I'll just say this. Some of you will understand this very well. Some of you, it might not make sense. But when obedience to the Lord also means giving up something that you deeply long for, things get really complicated spiritually and emotionally. Especially when you get to the place where you're saying things like, God, we obeyed. When are you going to give us back the thing we gave up? Um, but our, there was this moment um, when we were with YWAM, we were at this crazy uh, charismatic missions event um, up in the nosebleed section of a football stadium. And this event was wild. Like, I know a lot of you in this room, some of you would have loved it. Some of you would have hated it. I was like in the middle, you know. Some of it was awesome and some of it I was like, I've got to go. I've got to be somewhere. Um, but it was crazy. And that's one of the beautiful things about the fold is that we're a diverse community with people of a lot of different backgrounds. Um, but I remember the worship leader, um, started playing the song, This is Amazing Grace, which is a song that I've never really liked, if I'm being honest. Um, and they got to the bridge where the lyrics are, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. And I had this moment that hasn't happened to me very often, and it might sound weird to some of you guys, but this is just what happened. God spoke to me clearly. Jesus spoke to me clearly. And he just kind of took over my, my vision um, and Jesus said, I conquered the grave 
so that you could see your daughter again. I conquered the grave so that that wouldn't be the end. I just saw this picture of this little girl, and I don't know if it's what my daughter looked like. Maybe Jesus was just being nice and giving me something to hold on to, but it was like a little girl was just running to me, and I just have this overwhelming sense of someday being able to go to when Jesus has made everything right, when nothing lost is not redeemed, of looking at my daughter and showing her my knuckles and saying, I never forgot. You've been right here the whole time. So when I say, I know what it means to live with one foot in two worlds, one foot in each place. I know what it means to see the goodness of God now, but also to cling to the things that I know will not be redeemed until all is redeemed. I know what I'm talking about. I know what it means to have a hope that has been proven in this life and a hope that will never be proven in this life, but that I still hope for. After we completed our, uh, um, our travel overseas, we have began trying in 2019, June of 2019. We were excited. All of our training was over. We were going to be able to, um, to expand our family again. So we started trying in 2019. And then 2020 came. And then 2021 came. With just nothing. Doctors, medications, tests. Just nothing. No real idea what was wrong. Just not working. It got to the point where we kind of just just gave up. Um, and that moment that a lot of you know what this is like when when someone you love experiences something and you're so happy for them, but also the thing that they're experiencing is, is kind of just a reminder of the thing that's not happening to you. And joy and grief gets mixed together, shaken over. <laughs> that's why in uh, the end of November this year when Jen told me she was pregnant, it was the miracle above miracles. It was the goodness of God to us in, in every way. And that's why in August, our due date is the day that Jen went to the hospital for the miscarriage. Because God is good and he redeems every little thing. When I hold my child, I don't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl. Jen doesn't want to decide and she's the one carrying the baby, so I'm not arguing about it. Um, We're going to be surprised. Daughter or son, I will know exactly what it means to have joy and hope in this moment and a shadow. To live with one foot in each place. Because two things can be true at the same time. God can be already here with us. He can have never left. He can have been with us in the pain and with us in the struggle. He can have been saving us from things we didn't even know we were at risk for. And it can still hurt. And it can still be hard. We can have a hope for now and a hope that will not get answered now. Two things can be true at the same time. And maybe the only application this morning is just that whatever you're going through, it is contained here. Your story is in the story of God's people. 
that God does not expect any sort of plastic, false, fake, inauthentic emotion. He doesn't expect you to pretend like everything's fine because things can be okay and not okay. And you don't have to pretend like it's just one or just the other. Jesus is with you in both. Jesus is with you in all. Two things can be true at the same time. And I want to tell you this, and this is something that I almost never do. <laughs> but I just, I believe, I believe that this is from the Lord. And I want to say, I think, prophetically this morning, Joseph's words can become ours. God has made you fruitful in the land of your suffering. Friends, God has made you fruitful in the land of your suffering. It can be a land of suffering and a land of fruit. It can be a land of joy and it can be a land of pain. God can be with you right now, whether you feel it or whether you don't. And if you don't feel him with you, you don't have to pretend that you do. It's okay. But I wanna tell you this morning, whether you just need permission to say, even though it should be okay, it's not okay, or whether you need permission to laugh and celebrate when the world's falling apart around you, either one, the Lord has made you fruitful in the land of your suffering. The Lord has made you fruitful in the land of your suffering. We're going to worship because there's not a clean conclusion to a message like this. There's not a tight way to wrap this up. I don't have three points of application if I did, you shouldn't listen to them. <laughs> the application is just, it can both be true. And we can worship God. And we can notice and be aware and be present to all of those things going on at the same time. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, you just need someone else to believe on your behalf that the Lord has made you fruitful in the land of your suffering, I would love to pray with you. There are lots of people here who would love to pray with you. We can pretend like this is an altar and not just the awkward front of the building, and you can come up here and pray. You can turn your chair into an altar. But let's take this opportunity to reject the urge to pretend something and just bring our whole selves to the Lord with everything that's going on right now, joy, pain, complicated, difficult, easy, everything's going right, nothing's going right, whatever it is, let's just bring that to the Lord and see what he has to say about it. See how he responds when we're in his presence. Jesus, I thank you <clears throat> that you were no stranger to suffering. You were no stranger to pain. And when you wept for your friend Lazarus, knowing that you would raise him from the dead a few days later, you weren't pretending like everything was fine. <laughs> You weren't being fake or plastic. We thank you for that. We thank you that you never ask us or force us to pretend or project anything, but you're present with us where we're at as we are, authentically. God, I ask that you would give us the courage to be our real selves before you right now. Now, if there's somebody in this room that doesn't feel like they have permission, doesn't feel like it would be masculine, doesn't feel like it would be feminine, doesn't feel like it would fit their own personality, whatever, just to be authentic with you, and they're holding something back, I ask that you would give us the courage to let go of appearances and what other people might think and what we're, like, any of that, and just be real 
with you as we worship. We love you, Jesus. Friends, you know that our Savior, one of his names, was the man of sorrows. He was no stranger to our suffering, so we worship a God who understands. Let's stand and worship him together.